0: Alright, well I invite you to take your Bibles and open them with me to Psalm 88 this morning. Psalm 88. There are some Psalms that when we come to them, we might like to just skip ahead rather than trudge through them, trying to glean some encouraging thought, especially We find those psalms of lament, and we've dealt with some of them in the past. Psalm 88 is one of those psalms. In fact, this one may be the darkest and the most sorrowful psalm in the entire collection. It begins with a plea for Yahweh to hear the psalmist's prayer. And it ends with a cry of a single word, darkness. In between, the psalm dwells in the certainty of death with its inevitable separation from the works of God in this world. In fact, if I were of mind, we could outline this psalm very simply in two parts. Verses 1 through 9a, adrift among the dead. And verses 9b through 18, alone in the dark. Pretty cheerful, huh? Well, we're not going to skip the psalm. And if we're not going to skip the psalm, we might be tempted to run ahead to the New Testament and try to interpret the psalm in light of the New Testament. We might do that trying to relieve some of the psalmist's despair by pointing to Christ. But as I thought about that this week, I realized the Holy Spirit didn't see fit to relieve the psalmist, and I don't think we should relieve him either. By running ahead. And so, with that cheerful introduction, I'd like to take a moment to look at Psalm 88 with you. You can follow there with me. Uh, beginning there in verse 1. O Lord, Yahweh here. God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I am like a man who has no strength. Adrift among the dead, like the slain who die in the gra- who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more and who are cut off from your hand. You have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. Salah. You have put away my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an abomination to them. I am shut up and I cannot get out. My eye wastes away because of affliction. Lord, I have called daily upon you. I have stretched out my hands to you. Will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Salah. Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Shall your wonders be known in the dark and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But to you I have cried out, O oh Lord. And in the morning my prayer comes before you. Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I have been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. I suffer your terrors. I am distraught. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me off. They came around me all day long like water. They engulfed me altogether. Loved one and friend, you have put far from me and my acquaintances into darkness. Let's pray. Lord, thank You today for Your Word. It would be a little bit difficult to thank You for Psalm 88. It's a difficult passage of Scripture, to be sure. It's hard for us to read the psalmist's anguish here. Without seeing any glimmer of light in the psalm. Without seeing any, any hope expressed. Lord, We need your help today as we study this passage of Scripture. We believe this is your word, and because it is your word, it speaks to us today. There is truth here that must be applied to our heart and our life. I pray that you would show it to us. Help me as I speak. To be able to communicate this truth clearly. Not just my own opinion, but Your your truth, Your Word, declared. And I pray that Your Spirit would do a work in us. According to His will. And We'll give You praise and glory and honor because You are worthy. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now instead of going verse by verse through the psalm, I want to look... This morning at three different emphases of the psalmist. These are all challenges that he faces in prayer. And each one of them has a corresponding answer that we can observe in this psalm. The first one, very simply, is the silence of God. From the very beginning in verses 1 and 2, we read that the psalmist has cried out day and night... Before God, we read that he he wants his prayers to reach to the ears of Yahweh, the Lord, there in heaven. He repeats this claim again in verse 9, saying that he has prayed diligently to the Lord and stretched out his hands, he says, pleading with God to hear and answer his prayers. And then he comes back to this again a third time in verse 13 when he says that he has prayed daily. In the morning, his prayer coming to the Lord. And yet, it is as though Yahweh has cast off his soul. That's how he expresses it there in verse 14. And and as if he has hidden his face. It feels to the psalmist that when he prays, The Lord turns away from him and refuses to listen. In addition to feeling as though Yahweh has abandoned him, the psalmist complains that he has made all of his friends and loved ones turn their backs on him. And again, he says this more than once. Verse 8, he talks here about the acquaintances being put far from him. In fact, he says, you, speaking to the Lord here, you have made me an abomination to them. To be an abomination is to be something that is detestable, something repulsive or hateful. And so whatever God has done, the psalmist says, it it has made him foul and loathsome so that his closest friends can't stand to be around him. And again, that's how the psalm closes in verse 18. Loved one and friend, you have put far from me and my acquaintances darkness, he says. Not only is God silent, but God seemingly is not only just refusing to respond to His prayers, but He has abandoned Him completely and alone. Left Him without friend, without loved one, without anyone to comfort and help Him. At least that's how He feels as he's writing this psalm. Well, we might ask this morning, is that true? Has God actually abandoned him? Is the silence of God because God has truly turned his back? Now, we'll see. The second emphasis that the psalmist um, touches on here is what I call the stamina of evil. Whatever circumstances the psalmist is dealing with, and and he's not very explicit on those circumstances. He doesn't give us any specific details about what was taking place. But whatever it was, it's very clear that it is the result of sin and the consequences of sin. Sin is like a door that only swings one way. You can go in, but you can never go back out. We know from reading the scriptures that our our first parents sinned in the Garden of Eden and they plunged the whole human race into corruption. And there's absolutely nothing that you and I can do about that. There's no going back to the innocence of that place and that time when God first created man. The effects of that sin continue to be felt Throughout this life. By every single one of us. Notice how the psalmist speaks there in verse 3 of this experience. He says, My soul is full of troubles. It's an interesting word, full. It's used of being filled to satisfaction. Like like when you've had a really good meal. And you're full. Anybody relate to that experience? had a steak dinner last night and uh, it was filling it was nice to feel full after that you're satisfied you've had enough well that's what the psalmist says here and yet what he's saying is he has filled up with troubles he's had his fill of troubles he's fed up might be another way to put it have you ever felt that way You've just had enough. You just can't take it anymore. We're living in a cursed world where nothing works like it should. Our bodies break down. Our tools rust and wear out. Our monuments crumble and fade away. And the weeds just keep coming back year after year without fail. At some point you might feel like the psalmist. That you're just fed up. You just don't want to deal with it anymore. But what's more here in his description is that he feels trapped by his circumstances. Notice what he says there at the end of verse 8. I am shut up and I cannot get out. He's talking here in this context about the wrath of God. He he said that back in verses 6 and 7. You have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. And you have afflicted me with all your ways. This is a description of God's wrath, His anger uh, at sin. And it's like a crushing weight. Or it's like a flood that overwhelms the wrath of God. And again, he returns to this theme at the end of the psalm in the final verses. He speaks there of being afflicted in verse 15. Of being beaten down is what that word afflicted means. And being ready to die from his youth. These are the the terrors of Yahweh, as as he calls them here. His fierce wrath. And again, he uses the description of water that floods over him and threatens to drown him. So I was reminded as I was meditating on this this week of the hymn. The, the, the hymn the, with these words, sin and despair like the sea waves cold threaten the soul with infinite loss. But does the psalmist in this moment Does he succumb to depression and despair? We'll see. The third emphasis that the psalmist gives us here is the sorrow of death. Death is a result of sin. And just like sin, which is a one-way door, you can go in, but you can never come back out again. In the same way, you don't come back from death. He uses a whole series of images here to illustrate the nature of death. Starting there in verse 4, it's like going down to the pit. Being without strength. Verse 5, it's like being adrift. It's also, in that same verse, like being forgotten by God and being separated from His divine power. It's a place where Yahweh's saving works are not found, according to verse 10 where his loving kindness, his faithfulness, his miracles, and his righteousness are not known. And ultimately, at the end of the psalm, it is utter darkness. There's nothing good about death. It's unnatural. It's something to be hated. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 calls death the last enemy. And it's not just an enemy of Christians, of believers. Death is an enemy of all humankind. And of everything else that lives in this world. Death just doesn't belong on this earth. You understand that? Death doesn't fit here. It should never have come here. It's out of place. I think the psalmist would would join with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 when he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? The reality is, as men and women living under the curse of sin, death is unavoidable. Now, you might wonder when you read Psalm 88 why he speaks the way he does about death. Doesn't he believe in life after death? Wouldn't it be strange to read a passage of Scripture breathed out by God's Holy Spirit that denied such a fundamental doctrine as the hope of resurrection and the hope of heaven? Even Job, when he suffered, you remember Job, lost everything he owned his family, his possessions, and even his health. His wife turned against him. His friends turned against him. He was alone. And yet even Job, when he suffered, confessed his hope in the resurrection. He said this, For I know that my Redeemer lives. And he said, After my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Reading Hebrews 11 that Abraham, when he was preparing to sacrifice Isaac, believed that God would raise Isaac up from the dead. It just seems out of place to read things like we read here in verse 10. Will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? I mean, we want to kind of interject to the psalmist here and say, yes, God does raise the dead. But the psalmist doesn't acknowledge that, or at least doesn't seem to here. Well, I'm going to let you in on a little, See, it's not a secret, but I'll let you in on it anyways. When we're trying to interpret Scripture, we must be careful not to, when we come upon a difficult passage of Scripture, not to immediately run somewhere else to try to explain that passage of Scripture. There are a lot of other more comforting passages we could go to that talk about the resurrection and heaven and eternal life and hope. But if we abandon Psalm 88 in order to find solace somewhere else, we're going to miss the point of Psalm 88. This is not here by accident. I already confessed to you, the Holy Spirit breathed out these words. These are God's word given to us. We we ought not to try to candy coat this to make it more palatable. We need to wrestle with it. We need to meditate on it. We need to deal with it and do our best to understand it. That's what I'm trying to get at here. So I'm not going to borrow from another context in order to try to make these statements here easier to handle. And I'll say that because I even rewrote a part of my message this morning to make sure I didn't do that because I want to be careful how I handle this. I want to I want to deal with this text. Now, from a human perspective, in the midst of suffering and pain, in the midst of the, the grief, remembering loved ones who have died, and being very aware of our own mortality, the psalmist is speaking very accurately here about the nature of death. This is the human experience of death. When someone dies, they do not return to life. I know what you've heard. You've heard that some people die on the operating table. Some people die in the emergency room, and they have to be brought back to life. But I would simply say to you, those people did not actually die. How can I say that with such great confidence? Because Hebrews 9 tells us that it is appointed to men to die once, not twice. Now, if you're really astute and you want to challenge me, you might say, well, but what about Lazarus? or Jairus' daughter, or you know, the widow of Nain's son, or, or whoever. Okay, there are a handful of exceptions. The exceptions prove the rule. They were exceptions, supernatural works of God that He did to reveal Himself. But in the natural realm, in the natural process of things, the way that things work in this world, men die once. They don't die twice. When someone dies, they don't return to life. They no longer experience God's goodness and favor that he does in this world. They do not rise up and they do not sing the praises of the Lord. They do not declare his love, they do not declare his faithfulness, they do not remember his wonders or speak of his righteousness. When when men die in this world, they die and they do not return. Everything that the psalmist says here in this psalm is true. Death does not have a silver lining. It is an enemy to be hated and defeated, if that were possible. Unfortunately, for you and for me, it is impossible for us to escape death. We are helpless against it. This is the psalmist's complaint. So, does the psalmist simply wallow in despair, knowing that death is approaching and cannot be avoided? We'll see. Now, I want to go back to the first of these three emphases. And I said that each one of these emphases, each one of these emphases is a challenge that the psalmist deals with, and that there's an answer found in the psalm, and I want to show you that. Right, I want to go back to these because I think this is helpful to you the first emphasis is this, the silence of God. Okay, the silence of God. Remember that. He he prayed and it appeared as though God was refusing to hear him. It appeared as though God had turned his back on him. Not only that, but God had alienated him from all of his friends and anyone who could help him. It appeared he was completely on his own. Is it true that God abandoned the psalmist, this believer who prayed day and night for mercy. What evidence do we have here in this psalm that Yahweh either heard or refused to hear his prayer? Well, we do have his repeated statements about feeling as though God had turned away from him when he prayed. Read those. The psalmist over and over again felt abandoned by God. Of course, just as a side note, um, if we're going to try to connect Psalm 88 to its position in the Psalter, we talked about that a little bit before. Psalm 87 last week, remember? The glorious things that are spoken of Zion, the city of God. The glorious future that awaits that wonderful city that God has chosen to put His name there. Remember we said that the key to understanding that psalm was understanding that God is the one who calls things that are not as though they were. So when God says glorious things are spoken of, this broken down, burned out city filled with rubble, we can believe what God says in spite of what we see with our eyes. Because we trust God more than we trust what we can see. Well... The psalmist, from his perspective and the way he feels and what appears to him, God has abandoned him. But is that true? Well, as a evidence to the contrary, we also have the, the words of this psalm, all 18 verses of this psalm recorded for us. This psalm that was written down under the direction of the Holy Spirit and preserved for us, The very fact that this psalm exists proves to us that even though the psalmist felt like God had abandoned him, we can be certain God did not abandon him. The Lord heard his prayer, even though he didn't immediately respond. Right? The Lord heard his prayer, recorded this prayer in the book of Psalms and preserved it for us today. What more proof do you need that God was listening when the psalmist was praying? He heard. Now, it's interesting that in this psalm, we have no indication that God responded to the psalmist at any point in this psalm. So he prayed and he prayed and he prayed and God didn't respond. In fact, we have no evidence anywhere that God answered the prayer of the psalmist at any point in his life. As far as we know, the psalmist died without ever hearing from God. And yet... The Lord does not abandon his people. This is true. The Lord does not abandon his people. Now, uh, there's more evidence here we need to consider. I skipped at the beginning of the psalm. When we started reading, I skipped the heading of the psalm. The heading of the psalm is kind of lengthy if you look at it. But actually, and we've talked about this before, that's, some of that is misplaced some part of that actually belongs to Psalm 87. right? Most of it does. The only part that belongs to Psalm 88 is the last part, a contemplation of Haman the Ezraite. Right, the, the rest of it, the musical notations, those all belong, to the previous psalm, they're a postscript. Okay, we've noted that before, that that's the pattern. The author, the historical setting data, that goes at the beginning, the musical data goes at the end. So this Psalm, we have here a contemplation or a maskil of Haman the Ezraite. Now, we don't know a whole lot about this man, Haman. He is mentioned in one other place in the Bible, 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 31, where he is mentioned and identified as an Israelite who is known for his great wisdom. In that verse, he's compared to Solomon, and it says that Solomon was even wiser than this man, Haman, the Ezraite, who was known for his great wisdom. Of all of the things, though, that Haman said and wrote, of all the wisdom that he shared, the only thing that we have recorded and preserved is this song. This is it. Again, did the Lord hear his prayer? And the answer has to be, yes, God heard his prayer. He did not ignore him. He did not abandon him to his fate. Instead, he chose to elevate his lament, his cry, as a part of the sacred scripture and preserve it for future generations. Haman's sorrowful prayer, like all of God's word then, is profitable to us. It's profitable for our teaching, for our reproof, for our correction, and for our instruction in righteousness. It is the Word of God. And so we see the the psalmist's concern here, his challenge of the silence of God, and yet we would affirm that God does not abandon His people, and God indeed did not abandon Him. Now secondly, what about the the stamina of evil? Evil seems to be persistent. Evil seems to always be there. No matter what we do, the evil and the, 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 the negative effects of sin are constantly around us in this world. Doesn't the author here, doesn't Haman simply throw up his hands in frustration? It sounds like he's giving up in despair of ever finding any real relief from the relentless effects of sin. But again, we have to consider all the evidence. Let me give you this. First of all, we have the fact of his continued prayer. Right? In verse 1, he speaks about crying out day and night. Verse 9, he says he's daily called upon Yahweh. Does he give up when the answers don't seem to be coming? No. In fact, the third time that he speaks in verse 13, it's interesting. Notice what he says. But to you I have cried out, O Lord, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. Here he has been praying night and day. He's been praying for a, a long time and continuously praying. And you would think as he's he's awake in his bed at night, praying and pleading with God. And, and symbolically, think about it. In the darkness of night, he prays. And what does he hope to see as the sun is rising in the morning? Doesn't he hope to see some response, some answer to prayer? And yet, no answer is forthcoming. But his prayer continues, verse 13. In the morning, my prayer continues. My cry rises to you, he says. In the morning, I continue to pray. pray. And so there's this determination that in spite of the fact that God has not responded, he continues to pray. Instead of giving up when his prayers don't seem to have any effect, he recommits himself to pray. I would just submit to you, this is how the believer responds this is how we as believers are to respond when we, when we observe the, the world around us and we see just the constant, uh, the, the constant overwhelming effects of sin and evil in the world. Rather than throwing our hands up in despair and saying, I give up. We should, we should concerted, concertedly give effort to prayer. We should be determined to pray. That's the, how the believer responds to the problem of evil. We pray, and we pray in faith. Now, you notice the opening line of the psalm, verse 1. O Lord, O Yahweh, God of my salvation. Why pray to the God of my salvation when He is not yet saved? Doesn't that seem like a little bit like insanity? Doesn't it sound a bit like Abraham? We talked about him last week a little bit. Remember Abraham who against hope in hope believed? When it seemed like insanity for Abraham and Sarah to continue believing in God's promise after 24 years of waiting and no evidence of any fulfillment. And yet, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. It may appear foolish to keep on praying when it seems like God isn't listening. But the truth is that He is the God of our salvation. And therefore we ought to trust in Him even when we have no visible reason for hope. One writer put it beautifully. I like this. He said, When there is no hope, the only hope lies in seeking God. When there is no sign of saving action, the only recourse is to cry to the saving God. So as believers, we pray in faith. This brings us to the third and final emphasis of the psalmist here. The most difficult one, really. And this is the sorrow of death. Is it true that death is the end and there's no escaping from the grave. It's tempting to read this psalm. It really is tempting to read this psalm and then jump ahead to the New Testament. Read about Christ conquering death by His resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. I listened to a couple of messages from Psalm 88 yesterday, just trying to get a different perspective after I had finished writing my message or thought I had finished it. And in both cases, the uh, the preacher used the work of Jesus Christ as a lens through which to interpret the psalm. And to try to make sense of the psalmist Christ. And as I listened to both messages, I kind of came away thinking, yeah, but you didn't really deal with the psalmist issues at all. I mean, if it's all about Christ, then how would that benefit a Jewish person living hundreds of years before he came? What would would the Jewish person who first heard this psalm, what would he have thought? You and I can look back and we can say, oh, thank God. He sent Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin, who lived a perfect and sinless life, who died on a cruel cross, who rose again the third day and ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. We can do that. They couldn't. What, what? What possible benefit could this have if, all, if the only way for us to get it is to go, well, yeah, 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 death seems really bad, but there's the hope of the resurrection over here. And, and, and frankly, I think sometimes we might be a little quick to run to that as a way of kind of saying, you know what, you shouldn't worry about all the pain and death and suffering in this life because there's something better to come. So just quit complaining and quit worrying about stuff because don't worry, there's resurrection. I mean, that's a good thing, but I just don't think that's really treating this passage of Scripture with full respect. What I want to do is I want us to wrestle with this issue. What could Psalm 88 have possibly taught the believing Israelite in the Old Testament time, hundreds of years before Christ would ever set foot on this earth as the God-man. And, and there's another lesson or another point be worth making here. I, I want to just point this out. We, Jesus, in Luke 20, verse 37, this was one of our readings this week, if you're following along on our reading schedule. I hope you are. And And if you're not, or if you've gotten behind just, you know, I encourage you to keep at it, um, keep it up. Don't don't give up. It's the word of God; it's precious. But Jesus in Luke twenty verse thirty seven, he says this: Even Moses showed in the burning bush, passage, burning, I can't say that, in the burning bush passage, that the dead are raised. When he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living; for all live to him. And Jesus said that because he expected that the Jews, if they truly believed Moses, would have hope of the resurrection. What possible relevance does that here? Here, well, I don't think we would classify the psalmist here in Psalm eighty-eight as an unbeliever, would you? He's praying to Yahweh, the God of his salvation. This is a man who believes the Scriptures. Jesus said, if you believe the scriptures and you believe Moses, then you know that the resurrection is true. Because Moses said it at the burning bush. And So if you just take what Moses said and believe it, resurrection, it's got to be true. What what does it tell us about the the, the author of Psalm 88? It tells us that he knew that the dead would be raised again. He knew about the resurrection. He wasn't ignorant about that. And yet, he still prayed this way. Why? That's the really hard question that this psalm forces us to to face. And I can't soften it by appealing to the New Testament. Let's put it this way. Let me try to frame the question. How should a believer who is trusting in Yahweh, the God of his salvation, think about suffering and death? We shouldn't ignore it. We shouldn't cheapen it and say, well, yeah, suffering's bad and death is bad, but there's a resurrection. We shouldn't dismiss it. The psalmist here shows us how we should respond to suffering and death as believers. And it's this that we should grieve. We should grieve over suffering and death, knowing that they are a part of this life. The lesson this psalm teaches us is one that most of us would rather ignore. The psalm teaches us that it's possible for us to suffer without relief in this life. Eighteen verses, from beginning to end, no word of relief, no happy ending. And we all like the fairy tales. That, end with, that they lived happily ever after. God doesn't promise anything like that to us. That's why this psalm is really important. Every other lament psalm, to my knowledge, every other lament psalm in the book includes some word of encouragement. Some word of hope where the psalmist says, I know things are bad, but I'm going to wait because they'll get better. I'm going to trust in you because I know you've got better things coming. Except this one. This one doesn't include the word of encouragement or hope. It ends with darkness. Because we need to remember that God does not owe us a happy ending. He does not owe us relief from our pain. He does not owe answers to our questions. He's given us His word. And we're to trust Him whether He grants us relief or not. Withholding a happily ever after ending is not proof of God's displeasure. It's not proof that God has been defeated. And if you listen to a lot of TV preachers, you might get a different take on that. You know, that if if things don't work out really good for you at at the end of the 30-minute sitcom time slot, that that means that God's not happy with you. You've made a mistake somewhere. You've gone on the wrong path. You've messed up. This psalm would suggest to us Otherwise. Alec Motier puts it this way, if we're in the soup, it's he who has decided what sort of soup it is and at what temperature and for how long and why. When you suffer, trust the Lord. Pray in faith, but also grieve because death and suffering are the result of sin and all of us, To groan within ourselves as we await the redemption of our bodies. Things here in this world are broken. It's true. As believers, we should be the first to admit that. And then we should turn to the Lord. We should cry out in faith, just like the writer of Psalm 88. Let's pray. Lord, it can be difficult for us, for me, to face the truth of this psalm that sometimes suffering and pain and conflict and trouble and abandonment and loneliness in this life, sometimes these things endure without end. And we're not guaranteed a happy resolution in this life. We're not guaranteed that everything is just going to kind of turn around for our good. And all of a sudden, if we just hold out long enough, eventually everything will be good. The reality is that we are sinners who live in a world that is under the curse of sin. And until that changes, we are going to experience difficulty pain, suffering, even death, the loss of loved ones, we're going to grieve and we should grieve. But help us not to be afraid, to grieve, to cry out to you when our hearts are filled with pain and sorrow because of what we're enduring. Help us not to think that somehow we've got to put on a happy face and make everybody think that we're okay when reality is We're suffering and we're groaning in this world. Waiting for the redemption of our bodies and of all of creation. Lord, we don't grieve as those who don't have hope. Paul tells us that. We know that there's the hope of resurrection. We know there's the hope of eternal life. There's the hope of heaven. And yet, I'm afraid that sometimes we... We don't allow each other as Christians to grieve like we ought. To deal with and wrestle with the real consequences of sin. Lord, I pray that you'd help us today. Help us to trust in you. When it seems like you've turned your back. Help us to trust in you when it seems like like our prayers are unanswered and like evil continues to rise and get stronger and overwhelms us. Help us to continue to trust in you and pray. I thank you for the church that you've given us, that we can draw near to one another for encouragement, to even simply grieve with one another, as the New Testament tells us we ought to do. And as we pass through this life, help us to trust you and to keep our eyes focused on you. And we might be faithful to the end. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.